Lady Phil, welcome to Tell a Friend. So I'll begin by introducing you to my audience. You're the co-founder of UK Black Pride, you're the executive director of Kaleidoscope and the co-editor of Sister Anthology. And for my first question, I was wondering if you could talk to me a bit about both organizations, so UK Black Pride and Kaleidoscope, and a bit about the work you do with both of them. Okay, sure. And thank you very much for inviting me onto this podcast. So my name's Phil Apokujima, also known as Lady Phil, um, for a number of different reasons, which is a whole nother podcast. Um, I am the Executive Director of Kaleidoscope Trust. Kaleidoscope Trust is an LGBT plus human rights international charity that works with civil society, um, mainly in the global south, which whereby we make interventions with parliamentarians, diplomats, high commissioners, particular actors and stakeholders in order to look at how we look at legal reform, um, remove those colonial era laws that exist in those countries. And we have what's called an, uh, a network called TSEN, the Commonwealth Equality Network, up to about 60 civil society organizations from all of the Commonwealth countries. And we're led and steered by their guidance and what they want us to do, you know, not taking a colonial approach and telling them this is what's best for you, but really allowing them to speak to their lived experience of the various issues that they faced within the global south and also some parts of Europe. Um, and then my, and that's my day job. So in my volunteer work, I am the co-founder and executive director of UK Black Pride. And UK Black Pride is part of the Pride family. I like to say that we are a movement and definitely not a moment, as some would lead you to believe, because we're not just celebrating and dancing and enjoying and drinking um, through a Pride festivity, but we are really taking an approach that looks at things through an intersectional lens. And by that, I mean that we're taking into account our, the differences within our communities that will speak to poverty, socioeconomic class, gender, disability, um, youth, uh, race and religion, and many different other factors such as cultural um, beliefs and where people are from, indigenous and so forth. Um, so yeah, our UK Black Pride is kind of like the baby and I'm, I'm very precious about it, although it does belong to the community, but um, primarily what it sets out to do is empower, foster great links with others, making sure that there's a safe space for our LGBTQ plus um, black and people of color communities to come together in a way that we can talk about our needs, our aspirations, our goals and our hopes and also find some sort of sanctuary with chosen family. Now, I know when you uh, co-founded UK Black Pride, I knew there was a lot of pushback, and this is something that I've read about, that I've heard you speak about before. Could you talk to me about why it was important for you to create a separate movement for minority uh, ethnic community within the LGBTQ plus uh, community? Yeah. Um, 
do I see it as separate? I see it as something that adds value to what's already there. Um, I think when we're talking about how we organize and understanding the different struggles and challenges that we face on a daily basis, the historical context of one, how black, African, Caribbean, Asian people arrived in this country, when we're talking about colonialism, slavery, enslavement, I think that our story, our narrative, and how it's been shaped in the past has been one that's negative. And, you know, compounded with the issues or the challenges or opportunities or beauty of being LGBTQ plus people. And I'll say LGBTQ for the purpose of this, and I do mean, you know, every part of our LGBT spectrum. Um, it really has lent itself to being able to discuss different things, being able to make sure that we have space to talk about what we need, um, having the space to also understand how mental health impacts the black community. And even now, if we're, if we're thinking about COVID, you and I are sat on a, on a call where usually we'd be doing this face to face, but we know COVID, coronavirus, has disproportionately impacted black and brown communities. So there has to be a place and a space for us to be able to talk about how we respond to these challenges. Um, and when, and to not be so diplomatic, you know, when UK Black Pride was being set up, we were responding to the emergency and the emerging um, plight of what was happening with the far right. There was, you know, really nasty, homophobic, biphobic, transphobic, sexist, racist propaganda in the media, but also being spouted out by individuals that felt emboldened to do that. And as black and POC and also LGBTQ people, there was no time to just sit back and think it was going to resolve itself. We also responded to that in a way that we came together collectively. Um, you know, they say, together you're stronger. And it's not that we didn't ask um, other parts of our LGBTQ communities. Um, we just got that pushback, as you rightfully pointed out at the beginning. And it showed us that sometimes you have to do it yourself if others are not willing to take a stand with you or understand um, how the world challenges you in different ways and presents barriers um, of oppressions that exist there. Now, correct me if I'm wrong, but UK Black Pride um, organises around the political blackness um, definition. <laughs> Am I right in saying that? When we started, yes, we organized around political blackness um, because we understood that there was much more of a commonality. Um, you know, trade unions were very much part of our, our DNA in helping us get set up. So we said black, which was encompassing, you know, those of the African, Asian diaspora, Middle Eastern, Latin American, those that are indigenous, those who saw themselves as not white. Yeah, and, and the reason I asked you uh, that question is because within the black community, there's a lot of debate about it. 
I myself am very torn between uh, whether to accept it or not. And I was wondering, in your point of view, when organizing uh, a movement, do you think political blackness uh, today is a useful way for minority ethnic communities and especially the black community to come together and collectivize? See, language evolves and it changes. And I think there was and still is that need to organize around political blackness. But if we're talking about Black History Month, we're very, very clear that it's about the history of black people, those from the African diaspora. Um, but when we're talking collectively, sometimes we now use terminology, having listened to some of our younger generation that don't subscribe to political blackness. And we do use terminology like people of color or black POC, and obviously there's terms like BAME, Black and Asian Minority Ethnic, which, you know, I might not necessarily agree with, but I understand some people identify in that way. And then you've got BME, Black Minority Ethnic. So I think there's not one way to look at this, um, because self-identifying is down to individual. But for the purposes of UK Black Pride as a whole, we make it clear now in our communications that, you know, when we're saying black, we're meaning this, but we will use people of color. We will say queer people of color or queer black people of color because, you know, it doesn't work for everybody. And, um, and that's the reality of it. But I, I also think that POC, terms like POC, have very much come from an American um, influence and yeah, and, it, and that doesn't necessarily always work for us. So I know that I'm a black woman, but in spaces that I might be speaking to different audiences, I would say, you know, as part of the people of color community, I identify as a black woman. So language, language and the way we shape and frame what we say is incredibly important to different people, just like, 20 odd years ago, you know, there was no real language around non-binary and gender fluid and gender neutral. Um, of course, some people were using it, but it wasn't as commonly and widely used. Whereas now, um, you know, we respect how one sees themselves and try to incorporate it in our organizing for pride and any other activities that we have. Now, for the most part, the LGBTQ plus uh, community is very accepting of people uh, because most, most of them have gone through uh, being uh, marginalized themselves. But something uh, which I think you, you touched upon uh, in, your first, in the first question is that there is far right sections and racist sections within that community as you find anywhere else. And I wanted to ask you, do you think the emergence of online communities, uh, be it through dating apps, be it through Twitter, has exacerbated this problem? I think that it's been intensified, yes. You know, technology has shown us some beautiful ways of doing things, but has also given rise to, you know, online bullying, trolling, you know, people feeling incredibly anxious about how they engage with particular groups. Um, and 
you know, I remember it was Gaydar, um, Gaydar Girls. I put myself on a Gaydar Girls dating app and this was, you know, we're talking over, over 15 years ago and some women on there were like, oh, you know, I don't date blacks, you know, and now you see the same thing that's being told around Grinder or whether it's Tinder, you know, Grinder, no, it, it reminds us of the no dogs, no blacks, no Irish, and they're using even much more derogatory terms, and there's no moderation or filter, filtering of that. So, yeah, I think it's I think it's intensified, um, and people. People will always be people, but you mentioned though that the LGBTQ community is um, accepting, and I think accepting for who? Because it doesn't mean just because you're part of a marginalized group or a vulnerable group that it makes you exempt from being a bigot. And on the, on the topic of uh, dating apps, in June uh, we saw Grinder announced that they were get, getting rid of their ethnicity filter, which I guess they saw as their kind of job done. And <laughs> I ask you, do you think that that goes far enough or do you think there's still a lot more discussion that's needed around race and about identity within the LGBTQ plus society, uh, community, sorry. So the simple answer is absolutely yes. You know, if in 2020 we are still talking about the racism that is felt, that is experienced within the LGBT community, you know, removing an ethnicity marker does not wipe away or eradicate the, you know, the systemic nature of how one is treated. What it does, it puts a plaster over something that is not allowed to heal, but it's covered up. I think that, you know, I, and I've had conversations with Grindr and I know that some people there really want to have real meaningful engagement with um, the black and brown communities that have talked about the racism that they feel. But I do think it needs to go deeper. You cannot just say, oh, we're gonna remove the ethnicity marker because it's causing us too much problems and everyone's talking about racism. Actually, let's have the conversation about racism, get to the root cause and think about what you can do to create a safe environment for people to date on an app. Now, in your work, I, I, I'm interested to find out when you're working with Global South countries or communities in the Global South, how do you approach it? Because a lot of countries, I'll speak for Africa because that's, that's what I know. In Africa, a lot of the homophobic legislation that's come in place, as you frequently talk about, has come in because of this colonial history that the, uh, that the continents had. And when you're approaching communities within these countries, how do you go about that doing it in a culturally sensitive way, but also in a way where you really want progress to be made in that sense? Yeah. So and I think that's a, a brilliant question. I wish that, you know, many civil society organizations from the global north would take an approach that they understand the work and the progress we want to see has to be guided by those who are living in 
Africa, Asia, the Caribbean, the Pacific, and also parts of Europe where legislation still exists. Um, the way in which Kaleidoscope Trust approaches it, I mentioned that we have a network called the Commonwealth Equality Network. So many of our programs are developed and um, pulled together through the input of what they're telling us that they need. So, you know, there'll be a sensitivity if we're going to work in Botswana, we've got to understand that there might be elections happening. You know, it might not be the right time to take a case to court um, through some of our other partners. So it has to be timed. But the, the bottom line is you have to listen to civil society and our human rights defenders. Otherwise you run the risk also of putting them in jeopardy. And I wanted to move our conversation to talking a bit about representation and visibility, because I'm sure if I was to ask anyone, name a black queer person, they, they couldn't do it. And uh, when I think myself uh, growing up, who are the uh, black gay voices uh, that I've seen? And again, very limited. And I wanted to find out from you, do you think that on-screen visibility and visibility in the public eye is the way forward to breaking down some of these prejudices? Or do you think there's a lot more to do in that, in that regard? Oh, I think you're answering your questions because there definitely is a lot more to do. And of course, representation matters and positive representation matters. You know, we can have lots of people on screen who happen to be, you know, black from the African or Caribbean or Asian background, but actually the roles in which they have, if they're the, the thief, the robber, the, you know, the gangster, the, you know, some of the stereotypes and tropes of women, black women who are the cleaners and the caretakers of people's families, then yeah, we've got visibility, but how positive is it? We want to be able to see ourselves in positions of influence and I don't want to use the word power because I think that can be quite subjective but I'll say power if you know what I mean you know why can we not be the you know the ones that are running the fortune 500 companies why are we not seeing ourselves in a way that we're succeeding and actually you know that the stories around 10 years of slave which I I loved but how many times do we want to hear and see about you know movies made by maybe white people who are shaping our narrative and telling our story when actually we've got some great scholars and academics who have been doing research for years. I would like to see more representation on, on our screens, you know, in media, um, in theatre, in the arts. But we have to address some of those structural and systemic problems around racism that prevents black and minority ethnic people being seen or even reaching a particular place whether it's around recruitment or there should be blind recruitment or whether it's around retention whether it's around policies in the workplace that don't lend itself to zero tolerance around racism or whether it's just pure and simple, you know, 
racism and unconscious bias. Um, so there's not just learning to do, but there's unlearning to do. And that's what takes time. And I think that, you know, podcasts like yours and people that you have coming on or conversations that we're having around Black Lives Matter, Black history, gender, the equal pay gap, we need to usualize those conversations. And we need to also have intergenerational conversations so that some of us who are much maturer that have a particular way of thinking that the youngsters, or oh, that sounds bad, you know, because my daughter doesn't like being called the youngster, the, the younger generation can help inform us about what they need if we do have access to rooms and places and organizations and corporates that they might not. So yeah, there's, there's such an approach to this. And it really is like you need a much bigger theory of change where our, our communities can come together and think about, you know, what would that look like? What is that aspiration? What's that target? What is it that we want to actually get to? And who do we need to help influence that or shape it? And you're, you're a prominent um, figure. You're a very uh, vocal person on a lot of issues uh, to do with race to do with prejudice all, all of these issues and I was wondering as a black woman what kind of pressures have you faced uh, whilst climbing to the top um, and do you feel that now that you've got such a big platform you get a lot more pushback from people you know the, the, that's the sort of question that makes the eyes glaze over when you have to unearth or relive or rehash some of the challenges that you face and you know I've always said that I've received every proverbial slap in the face that you could possibly get whether it's through microaggressions in the workplace and also school you know things shape your how you are whether it's you know blatant racism whether it's being spat at on a tube um but I think if we're talking about workplace context and you know studying and working and going for promotion again and again and sometimes not getting it and questioning why you've not got it but really you know because you're black or just because they think somebody else would be better suited because you might be seen as too aggressive or too loud, too bolshy when really we're trying to be assertive. I think I'm, I'm not grateful. I'm happy at how hard I've had to work to get to the place that I'm at. But now for me, it's about how do I open those doors so others get the opportunity to come through? And it's very much like when we talk about privilege, you know, privilege is now this very dirty word, but also it's associated with those who feel slightly entitled. But there are privileges that I have gained and I want to be able to use them now to ensure that our people and our communities are able to access the same things that I am. If I can walk into the House of Parliament and meet with an MP, I want, you know, Sandra, Brian, Bobby, Karen, not necessarily Karen, but, you know, to be able to walk in and feel confident knowing that they can speak about whatever it is they need to speak about, but you need to create that environment for it to happen. So the pushback is definitely there. 
Um, you know, even now, so I know that people don't want me in particular rooms, but they can't not have me in particular rooms because of where I've got to. Um, and I will use every opportunity to make sure that organizations, individuals are really standing true. So when we talk about inclusion, equality, diversity, and look at things, as I've always mentioned, from an intersectional lens. Now, speaking about your achievements, you were recently celebrated. Uh, you were one of 40 activists on the cover of Vogue September issue, which is a big deal. And uh, I just want to know, what was your reaction to that? God, if I'd known you'd bring this up, I would have put more lip gloss on and done my hair. Um, oh, you know, I think about it now and I get chills because it's positively empowering, you know, to be alongside 39 other activists, most of whom have inspired the work that I do, I've learned from that, it's liberating, it's, yeah, it's, it's joyful. And I think it speaks more to something about me as a, a very a dark-skinned African woman. You know, I think about that younger me that hated being called those names because of my dark skin or because of being African uh, or because of being different. And I'm like, I won't swear, but beep, beep, look at me now. Hello, you know. I'm, I'm loving all of this melanin whilst you have to go and pay for it. But so, yeah, I, I loved what that edition did. Um, and that's what we mean by representation. But I think we mustn't forget what Edward Enerfilm did, um, the editor-in-chief of Vogue, was to really push back on, you know, the way... Vogue has always normalized the standard of European standard of beauty and showed black beauty in all its fullest and its finest. But he also needs to be supported in his work because that's something that he is probably still going to be challenged for for a long time. So, yeah, you know, hats off to Edward Enerfor for what he did. And plus, I'm slightly biased because he's Ghanaian. <laughs> Now, I'll finish off with a quick fire round of questions, which I do with all my guests, uh, and I'll invite you to finish the sentence. So the first one is, the biggest misconception about me is... That I'm hard and angry. My biggest regret is... My biggest regret is that I wish I had more time to spend with my daughter when she was growing up. I am most proud of. My daughter, my community, or communities, my family, the work that I do. And finally, I want to be remembered for. I want to be remembered for doing the right thing for people. Lady Phil, thank you for joining me on Telefriend. I really appreciate you. Thank you very much. And I just want you to know that I see you and I'm incredibly impressed with what you're doing and keep on doing it. If there's any way UK Black Pride can support you, then just let us know. Thank you.